All right, let's turn in our Bibles to the Old Testament book of Daniel tonight, Daniel chapter number 9. Daniel chapter number 9. You know, the subject of biblical prophecy is one that always seems to pique everyone's interest and gets a lot of attention, although I think in some ways it kind of goes through cycles. And I think uh, in recent years we've seen an uptick in interest about biblical prophecy. I think any time that we have <clears throat> a lot of uncertainty in the world and a lot of turmoil, things kind of being uh, turned upside down, people are kind of drawn to biblical prophecy, begin to wonder uh, about the end times and things like that. And uh, certainly it is something that we ought to know about. We ought to study carefully. And uh, I think we have to be careful, though, um, in a couple of regards. First of all, I think we have to be careful that we don't become so consumed with biblical prophecy that we exclude the rest of what the Bible says, uh, particularly about how we should live right now. I remember years ago I was... Uh, back when we lived in North Carolina, I was talking to a fellow one time, began to witness to him, and, and he made the statement to me, something to the effect of, well, you know, I, I really like the, the prophecy in the Bible. I don't care for much of the rest of it, but I really like the prophecy. And I thought to myself, well, that's sad because you're missing a lot of good stuff. There's a whole lot in the Bible that uh, doesn't have to do with end times prophecy, and, and uh, particularly, of course, the gospel of the Lord Jesus Christ is crucial and, uh, and to say, well, I don't care about that whole, you know, death, burial, and resurrection of Jesus thing. Just talk to me about the end times. That's a problem. So we have to be careful that we don't exclude the rest of Scripture. But another thing we have to be very careful of is that people tend to be very dogmatic about certain aspects of end time prophecy where God has not been very dogmatic. There are a lot of things about the end times that God has intentionally not told us. He has left it as a mystery, and, uh, and, and we need to be content with that. We get into trouble when we are dogmatic where God is not. And so we just always have to be humble about it when we approach, approach the uh, teachings of Scripture in regards to prophecy. Um, see, the, the, the difficulty is, though, um, saying, well, we don't really know for sure... That doesn't sell a lot of books, does it? You know, if I was to say, I've written a whole bu- a book about all the things we don't know, you know, that's probably not going to sell a lot. And historically, whether we like it or not, historically it has been true that, uh, that end-time prophecy writings and series and different things like that are bestsellers. People make a lot of money on them. Now, I want to be careful. I don't don't know people's hearts. I can't say for sure, but there's been a lot of things that have been done, have been said, have been sold under the name of biblical prophecy that you just have to wonder, were they just trying to make a buck? So we've got to be careful in in those two regards that we don't exclude um, the rest of Scripture and that we are very careful that we, we take what Scripture says, nothing more, but nothing less. We want to be careful of those two things. That being understood, there is a lot in Scripture that God has told us about the end times, and He's told us it for a reason, in particular so that when it happens, it will be seen that all along it was according to God's plan, but also so that you and I, who are living right now, uh, would have hope 
and that that hope would cause us to live a holy and a pure life. Now, a lot of times when people are talking about the end times, there's one particular aspect of end times prophecy that people really tend to focus on, and that's called the tribulation period. That's that seven-year period during the end times um, that um, uh, involves the rapture of the church and the tribulation on the earth. It ends with the second coming uh, of Christ to the earth. And during that seven years, it's a period of time in which God's wrath is going to be poured out on all the world. And it's called the Great Tribulation, and the Tribulation and the Great Tribulation because it will be a time of trouble, of tribulation like the world has never seen. And in some ways... That helps us to keep things in perspective because as bad as it may seem to us in any given time, we can honestly say it's not as bad as it's going to get. And so that seven-year period, the tribulation, is one that gets a lot of focus. And what we're going to do tonight is we're going to take a short trip through Daniel chapter 9 where we find the first mention in the Old Testament where this seven-year tribulation period is really spelled out. Now, it's referenced in some other places prior to this, but Daniel chapter 9 is really the chapter where the seven-year tribulation period is is, uh, laid out as a part of God's uh, prophetic calendar. Now, you may wonder, why are we going to study something like this since it involves some time in the future that we don't know about? And since we believe in a pre-tribulation rapture of the church, we won't even have to be here for it. What's the point? Well, the point is this. 1 John chapter 3 that says, says, He that hath this hope in him purifieth himself even as he is pure. If we really believe that Jesus Christ is coming again and that he could come at any moment, then we should live ready for His coming at any moment. And so the benefit of studying prophecy is not just so that we can know what's going to happen in the future, but so that we can live how God wants us to live right now. Let's begin with a word of prayer. Dear Heavenly Father, we do ask again for your help in understanding your Scripture tonight. The word that you have given to us, we know it is profitable for doctrine, for reproof, for correction, for instruction in righteousness. And Lord, you have something for us in this tonight that we're going to see. And I pray that you would help us then to put it into practice, that the truth would be real to us, and we would live according to it. And Lord, I thank you that you already have a plan, that the last chapter has already been written, and that it's just a matter of time for that to be played out according to your, uh, to your perfect plan from eternity past. So Lord, help us to look forward to your coming again and help us, Lord, to live ready for your coming at any time. And we pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Daniel chapter 9, look with me at verse number 1. In the first year of Darius, the son of Ahasuerus, of the seed of the Medes, which was made king over the realm of the Chaldeans, in the first year of his reign, I, Daniel, understood by books the number of the years whereof the word of the Lord came to Jeremiah the prophet that he would accomplish 70 years in the desolations of Jerusalem. Now this is written by Daniel, as the name of the book suggests, and it was written by Daniel as he was much older in life. He is probably, at the time of writing this, 
uh, in his late 80s, we, uh, best as we can put together on the timeline in scriptures. So he's, he's much older in life. This is not, uh, this is not uh, the Daniel of chapter 1 who uh, purposed in his heart to uh, uh, not defile himself with the king's meat. This is uh, a Daniel that has lived through four, at least four different regimes. And he's actually living under a completely different government than he was in chapter 1. So much has changed in Daniel's life. In fact, the only thing that's been consistent in Daniel's life throughout his entire life was his testimony, his faith in God. Everything else around him had changed. But in this particular occasion, we know that it's the first year of Darius, uh, of the uh, king of the Medes. The Bible tells us that Daniel was sitting down and he was reading the Bible. He actually had a copy of the prophecy of Jeremiah. All right, it would not have been written in English like ours is, but essentially it's the same book. It's been translated for us, but it's the same book that we have today. Daniel was sitting down and he was reading in the book of Jeremiah. And as he's reading in the book of Jeremiah, he read the portion where God said that he would accomplish 70 years in the desolations of Jerusalem. Now this is a reference found in Jeremiah chapter 25 and verse number 11. It says there, And this whole land shall be a desolation and an astonishment, and these nations shall serve the king of Babylon 70 years. So Daniel's reading this, and he reads about the 70 years, and he begins to do the math in his head. When he, was a, when he left Judah, he was a young man, but now he's not so young. And he realizes that the 70 years, the end of that time, is starting to, get, uh, starting to run out, coming very close to the end of that prophesied time that, that Jerusalem would be left desolate. Now, again, we've got to kind of quickly rewind and recap what had happened in Daniel's life. When he was a young man... The, uh, um, he was kidnapped from Jerusalem and taken to Babylon. And at that time, Jerusalem was destroyed. And now he realizes, that being almost 70 years ago, it's coming close to the time that God said he would begin to restore his people and bring them back to Jerusalem. Now, what I find very interesting here is that Daniel even though he was a man who received special revelation from God and actually wrote scripture that was inspired by the Holy Spirit, notice how he is still committed to the written word of God. He didn't trust in his own uh, thinking or his own, even his own special revelation. He's going back to the scriptures that God had given, given pre previously. He's reading that. And there's an underlying understanding here that it's true. He didn't question it. God said 70 years. Daniel assumed 70 years must be 70 years. That's the truth. That means it must be coming close to an end. Now notice how Daniel responded to what he read in Jeremiah. Daniel chapter 9 verse number 3. And I set my face unto the Lord God to seek by prayer and supplication with fasting and sackcloth and ashes... And I prayed unto the Lord my God and made my confession and said, O Lord, the great and dreadful God, keeping the covenant and mercy to them that love Him and to them that keep His commandments, we have sinned and have committed iniquity and have done wickedly and have rebelled even by departing from Thy precepts and from Thy judgments. 
Daniel read about how God had judged Jerusalem and Israel for their sin and it was going to be a 70-year time period that that judgment would last. And his first and his immediate response was to go to God and pray a prayer of confession for the sins of his nation. Now notice how he used personal pronouns here. He said, I prayed unto the Lord my God, made my confession and said, look at verse number 5, we have sinned. We. He included himself. Now, he was a very young man, probably early, in his early teenage years, when he was abducted, kidnapped from Jerusalem, and Jerusalem was destroyed. But yet here, he takes the burden upon himself, confessing the sins of what his nation had done. He didn't say, God, look what they have done. He said, we have done it. You know, this shows really a burden that Daniel had for his people. He understood that the problem was not political. A lot of people would look at this and say, well, if Jerusalem, if, if Judah had just had a more powerful military, they wouldn't have been, you know, taken into captivity. You know, if they'd have just been more economically prosperous, if they had just had, you know, better leaders that could have led them into uh, uh, greater prosperity, this wouldn't have happened. No, he realized that the problem was not political, it wasn't economic, the problem was spiritual. That the reason their nation was in the state it was in was because they had left the precepts of God. They had disobeyed God's commands. He said, we have sinned. So now verse 7, he says, O Lord, righteousness, righteousness belongeth unto thee, but unto us confusion of faces as at this day, to the men of Judah and to the inhabitants of Jerusalem and unto all Israel that are near and that are far off, through all the countries whither thou hast driven them, because of their trespass, that they have trespassed against thee. O Lord, to us belongeth confusion of face to our kings and to our princes and to our fathers, because we have sinned against thee. To the Lord our God belong mercy and forgiveness, though we have rebelled against him. Neither have we obeyed the voice of the Lord our God to walk in his laws, which he set before us by his servants, the prophets. Daniel's prayer of confession here was very straightforward. He did not make excuses. He did not try to downplay the significance of their sin. He said that our problem was we did not respond to the preaching of the word that was done by the prophets that, had God, that God had sent. We did not obey the voice of the Lord. We rebelled and we trespassed. And the result was our nation was in utter confusion. And folks, can I say our problem in America today, it's not who's in the White House. It's not who's in Congress. It's not who's living in the governor's mansion. The problem in our nation today is we have rebelled against the Word of God. America has had many opportunities to change her ways. But by and large, it seems that we are just doubling down, going in the wrong direction. And what is the result? Confusion. Confusion. Our world is so mixed up today, so mixed up. But that's the natural result. Whenever you reject the truth of God, then you're susceptible to every lie. Now notice verse number 11. Yea, all Israel have transgressed thy law, even by departing, that they might not obey thy voice, 
Therefore the curse is poured upon us, and the oath that is written in the law of Moses, the servant of God, because we have sinned against him. And he hath confirmed his words which he spake against us and against our judges that judged us by bringing upon us a great evil. For under the whole heaven hath not been done as hath been done upon Jerusalem. As it is written in the law of Moses, all this evil shall come upon us, is come upon us, yet made we not our prayer before the Lord our God that we might turn from our iniquities and understand thy truth. Therefore hath the Lord watched upon the evil and brought it upon us. For the Lord our God is righteous in all his works which he doeth. For we obeyed not his voice. As he goes and continues in this confession, he acknowledges that everything that happened to Jerusalem and to Judah and to Israel as a whole happened in accordance to the word of God. God had warned them way back in the Old Testament law, if you rebel, if you sin, if you do not follow the law, the result will be punishment. Even to the point of being taken out of the land that God had brought them into. And again, we see here Daniel's reliance upon the Word of God, this time referencing the law of Moses. He's specifically mentioning Deuteronomy In chapter 30, verses 17 and through 19, the Lord said, But if thine heart turn away, so that thou wilt not hear, but shalt be drawn away and worship other gods and serve them, I denounce unto you this day that ye shall surely perish, and that ye shall not prolong your days upon the land, whether thou passest over Jordan to go possess it. I call heaven and earth to record this day against you, that I have set before you life and death, blessing and cursing. Therefore choose life, that both thou and thy seed may live." Before they ever got into the promised land, God warned them, if you turn from me and you serve idols, I will punish you and you will be taken out of this promised land. And now Daniel is looking back and he's saying, God, you you did exactly what you said you would do. We sinned. We rebelled. You warned us, but we didn't listen. And the result is now we're in captivity. He's not blaming God, but rather he is acknowledging that God has kept his word, his word of warning. And now in verse 15, his prayer turns from a prayer of confession to a prayer for deliverance. Verse 15, And now, O Lord our God, thou hast brought thy people forth out of the land of Egypt with a mighty hand, and hast gotten thee renowned as it is this day. We have sinned, we have done wickedly, O Lord, according to all thy righteousness, I beseech thee, let thine anger and thy fury be turned away from the city Jerusalem, thy holy mountain. Because of our sins and for the iniquities of our fathers, Jerusalem and thy people are become a reproach to all that are about us. Now therefore, O our God, hear the prayer of thy servant and his supplications, and cause thy face to shine upon thy sanctuary that is desolate for the Lord's sake. O my God, incline thine ear and hear, open thine eyes and behold our desolations and the city which is called by thy name. For we do not present our supplications before thee for our righteousnesses, but for thy great mercies. O Lord, hear. O Lord, forgive. O Lord, hearken and do. Defer not for thine own sake, O my God. For thy city and thy people are called by thy name. Notice in his prayer for deliverance here how humble Daniel is. He doesn't pray, God, all right, we've learned our lesson, and because we've learned our lesson and we've amended our ways, we fixed it all, now please deliver us. That's not how he approaches God. 
He over and over again, he says, not for our sake, Lord, but for your sake. Not for us, not because we're righteous, but because you're righteous. Not because we're good, but because you're merciful. Not because we are anything special, but because you are a great God, Lord. Please deliver us. Please deliver us. He asks God to deliver them for God's sake, not even for their own sake. He says again in verse 19, For thine own sake, O my God. So here's the, the context in which we're going to see this prophecy about Daniel's 70, uh, 70 weeks. And we'll get there in just a moment. But before we do, I want to pause and just make a very uh, uh, brief mention of, of some important truths we see in Daniel's life here that we need to take to heart. Number one, like Daniel, we need to make God's word a priority in our life. We need to make God's word a priority. What was it that God used in Daniel's life in Daniel chapter 9 to move him to this prayer of confession and prayer for deliverance? It was the word of God that had been given. We might say that it was while Daniel was having his devotions that God spoke to him about this. And here's a, a man who had received direct revelation from God he had been a, an author, a penman of Scripture, and yet to him, the written word was still a priority. He still read it. He still studied it. What an what a example that is to us that no matter how much we know about God, no matter how much we know about the Bible, we never know it all. We never know. We've never, we haven't arrived. So never stop being a student of the Bible. Furthermore, never doubt that what you read in Scripture is absolute truth. Daniel read it so he knew it was true. He didn't question it. He took God at His word. Here's another thing we learn from Daniel's example is that we should mourn over sin. Sin ought to make us sad. I know if you're like me, you read the news or you see new clips or you watch the news, maybe some of you watch it, and you see the sin that's in our world today, and instead of being sad, you get mad. I know that's how I feel a lot of times. I just feel mad. How can they do that? How can they say that? How can they think that way? But you know, rather than being mad, and there's a place for righteous anger, but we ought to be sad as well. We ought to mourn over our country's sin. Daniel was brokenhearted over where his nation was. He knew that the Israelites were not where they ought to be. He knew God didn't want them in foreign countries as, as, as trophies of previous invasions and generations past. He knew God wanted His people back in the promised land. But more than being physically in a specific place, He knew God wanted His people to be living in righteousness. And He was brokenhearted, not only over where they were, but how they got there. Israel ended up in bondage because they'd rebelled against God. It was the rebellion and the sin that really broke Daniel's heart more than the captivity. God help us to be more brokenhearted over our country. Not just where we are, but how we got here. 
You know, the sins we see that are so prominent today, they didn't just start today. They didn't just start yesterday. We go back a couple of generations now, and we can really track how, how our country has turned away from the Lord and drifted farther and farther. Rejected His Word. Rejected God, pushing Him further and further out of the public square. May our hearts be broken for the sins of our nation. But then number three, we learn this from Daniel's example, that we need to pray for our nation and pray specifically for God's deliverance. God prayed, or Daniel prayed rather, that God would be merciful to them. Not because they deserved it, but because God was a great God and He deserved to get the glory from it, he prayed that God would deliver His people back to Jerusalem. And again, in doing this, he was praying based on the promise of Scripture regarding that 70 years of of desolation that Jerusalem would be under. He was not concerned for his own comfort. Let's face it, at this point in his late 80s, he probably would not get to enjoy any benefit if Jerusalem was restored. If he got to go back there at all, it would be for a very short period of time, all things being equal, before his life was over. He wasn't doing it for his own comfort. His concern was for the glory of God. He wanted to see revival among his nation for the glory of God. And that ought to be the desire of our hearts as well. To see revival in our nation, not so that we could brag about how we got to be a part of it or we got to see this or that, but so that God would get the glory from it. That was his greatest concern. He made God's word a priority. He mourned for his country's sin and he prayed for God's deliverance. But now we come to the prophetic part. And we've taken the time to honor the text here and look at these verses leading up to it because it is helpful to us as now we read about this prophecy that Daniel gets. We understand the context in which it came. Because in verse number 20, Daniel is visited by a heavenly messenger. And whilst I was speaking and praying and confessing my sin and the sin of my people Israel and presenting my supplication before the Lord my God for the holy mountain of my God, yea, whilst I was speaking in prayer, even the man Gabriel, whom I'd seen in the vision at the beginning, being caused to fly swiftly, touched me about the time of the evening oblation, and he informed me and talked with me and said, O Daniel, I am now come forth to give thee skill and understanding. At the beginning of thy supplications the commandment came forth, and I am come to show thee, for thou art greatly beloved. Therefore understand the matter and consider the vision. So Gabriel shows up here, the angel Gabriel, and tells Daniel that he's got a special message for him. And this special message is a prophecy about 70 weeks. Verse 24, 70 weeks are determined upon thy people and upon the holy city to finish the transgression and to make an end of sins and to make reconciliation for iniquity and to bring in everlasting righteousness and to seal up the vision and prophecy and to anoint the most holy. Now before we go any farther, we need to mention what the term week here is referring to. In the Old Testament especially, the word week does not always refer to seven 24-hour days that we think of. Especially when it's dealing with prophecy. It usually means a group of seven. And the indication is that these are weeks of years or 77-year periods. 
So 77 year periods makes a total of how many years, math scholars? Some of you are doing 490. Say that with me, 490. Are you awake now? I know. Sunday night and I made you do math. That's cruel, I'm sorry. But 70 times 70 is 490. So what this is, is a prophecy about 70 weeks of years, 490 years. Now, several important truths to note about this 70 weeks from the very beginning. Notice that it is focused on the Jews and Jerusalem in particular. What has, what has Daniel been, been praying about here in this chapter? He's been praying about the desolation of Jerusalem. And now Gabriel shows up with a special uh, uh, mention, of this special message rather, and notice how it begins. Seventy weeks are determined upon thy people, that's the Jews, and thy holy city. What was the holy city of the Jews? Jerusalem. So the 70 weeks of Daniel very clearly are talking, are, are focusing on the Jewish people and specifically the city of Jerusalem. Now, secondly, notice that at the end of this 70 weeks, according to verse 24, Israel's rebellion against God will be finished. They will be done rebelling. Notice how it says it. To finish the transgression, to make an end of sins, and to make reconciliation for iniquity and to bring in everlasting righteousness to seal up the vision and prophecy and to anoint the most holy. So at the end of this 70 weeks, this 490 years, there will be an end of rebellion by the Israelites, by the Jews, against God. Okay? Third, very important from this verse, is that the end of the 70 weeks marks the beginning of the reign of Christ. Notice the last phrase to seal up the vision and prophecy and to anoint the most holy. That is a reference to the Messiah who will set up His earthly kingdom at the end of the 70 weeks. So, here is the summary, the synopsis or the introduction. Now, Gabriel is going to break down the 70 weeks into several different segments of time. The first segment is made up of seven weeks plus 62 weeks, which equals, what's 7 plus 62, math scholars? 69, very good. What's 69 times 7? Just kidding, I won't make you do that in your head. 483, I have it written down, I cheated, okay. 483 years. Notice verse 25. Know therefore and understand that from the going forth of the commandment to restore and to build Jerusalem unto the Messiah the Prince shall be 70 weeks, excuse me, 7 weeks, and three score in two weeks. Three score in two is 62. The street shall be built again, the wall even in troublous times. So, according to verse 25, the first section is a section of time that's seven weeks plus 62 weeks. That's 69 weeks or 483 years. During this time, it's going to begin when a commandment goes forth to rebuild and restore Jerusalem, which we find happening, by the way, in Nehemiah chapter number 2. From that time until the coming of the Messiah, Messiah the Prince, according to verse 25, was to be 62, uh, 7 weeks plus 62 weeks, or 69 weeks, which is 483 years. Now, when this was given to Daniel, it was prophecy. But this part has already been fulfilled, so for us it's history. 
Now, I don't have time tonight, um, but you can look this up because a number of people have actually mapped out the timeline of this. And if you go back and you look at when that commandment was issued in Nehemiah chapter number 2 to rebuild Jerusalem, and you map that all the way until the Lord Jesus Christ rode into Jerusalem and was crucified that week, what you find is it was exactly 483 years. That has already been fulfilled because God keeps His Word. So the first section, the seven weeks plus 62 weeks, the 69 weeks making 483, has already been fulfilled. But something happened at the end of that first section. Something very important. Something that all of history hinges upon. At the end of that 483 years, Jesus Christ was crucified. Look at verse 26. And after three score and two weeks shall Messiah be cut off. But not for himself. And the people of the prince that shall come shall destroy the city and the sanctuary, and the end thereof shall be with a flood, and unto the end of the war desolations are determined. At the end of the 483 years, the Messiah will be cut off. That was a prophecy of the crucifixion of the Lord Jesus Christ. And here's what happened. When the Lord Jesus Christ was crucified on the cross, the 483 years was fulfilled. God pressed pause on His plan for Israel. He pressed pause. Verse 26, predicting the crucifixion of Christ and later the destruction of Jerusalem and the coming of the Antichrist. The prince that shall come is the Antichrist. The people of prince of the prince in scriptural language was referring to the Romans as they destroyed Jerusalem and that happened in 70 A.D. Two of the three prophecies there have already been fulfilled. The only one that has not been fulfilled yet is the appearing of the Antichrist. Now understand that when Jesus died, God pressed pause on this program, on this 70-week this thing, and we entered into a time frame that was not abundantly clear in the Old Testament. It was there, but it was not well understood. We entered into a time of the Gentiles. Some call it the church age. Paul refers to this in Ephesians chapter 3 as a mystery concerning Christ in the church. It was something that was not exactly clear to those in the Old Testament. In the Old Testament, God worked through the nation of Israel to communicate to all the world the message of salvation and redemption. In the New Testament, God is working through the church to do that. Now let me be very clear. The church has not replaced Israel. God still has a plan for the Jewish people. And here's a point where many people get off when it comes to end times prophecy. They say, well, God's done with Jews. God is done with Israel. He is, he's finished with them. He's working through the church now. And he's going to finish out with the church. There's one problem with that. It's not true. You look at in Romans chapter 9, 10, and 11. You look in the book of Revelation and the references there to the, to the tribes of Israel. It's very clear in Scripture that God is not done with the Jews. He has just, through this age, chosen to work through the church at this time, but He's going to come back and work through the Jews as He did previously. 
Again, I use that language, he pressed pause on the program for Israel, but that doesn't mean that he's finished with them. One day, he's going to push the play button again. He's going to continue where he left off, and that day is going to be the very first day of what we call the tribulation period, the 70th week of Daniel. Notice verse 27 now. We've had reference to the prince that shall come. That's mentioning, that's a reference to the Antichrist in Daniel 9, 27. And he shall confirm the covenant with many for, what's that next phrase? One week. So here we are. We had 7 plus 62, that's 69. We were missing one week of the 70 weeks that Gabriel talked about. Where's that missing week? Here it is. It's the week of, of, of the tribulation period. It'll begin with the Antichrist's rise and the, con, the, the confirming of the covenant. And it says, In the midst of the week, he shall cause the sacrifice and the oblation to cease. And for the overspreading of abominations, he shall make it desolate, even unto the consummations. And that determined shall be poured out upon the desolate. Time fails us tonight to really go into details here. But the one week of verse 27 is what makes up the total of the 70 weeks. This last week, this last seven-year time period, is what we call the tribulation period. Now, this being understood, we have to recognize then that the tribulation period is God returning to His direct dealings with the Jewish people, with the nation of Israel. That's what the tribulation is. Now, I know we think about it, it was just going to be awful, and it is indeed going to be a time of God's wrath, but we have to understand why. It is because God is finishing up with Israel. He's making an end of transgressions. He's making it, bringing about the full reconciliation of their iniquities. And it's God returning to His direct dealings with the Israelites. Much of that will be pouring out His wrath on Israel and all the rest of the world, ultimately so that Israel will be purified and no longer rebel against Him. The tribulation is focused on the nation of Israel. All the world will be affected, but it is focused on the Jewish people. If you want to jot this reference down, you can check this later, but Jeremiah 30 and verse number 7 specifically calls it the time of Jacob's trouble. The whole world will be in trouble, but specifically, God will be dealing with the Jewish people. At the beginning of the tribulation, the Antichrist makes the seven-year covenant with the nation of Israel, but in the middle of that, he breaks the treaty. The second half of the tribulation will consist of horrors like the world has never seen. We call that the Great Tribulation Period. During that second half, we read of the seven seals, the seven vials, the seven trumpets. Also, by the way, seven thunders, which God has said nothing about except that there exists. And when John started to write about it, God said, nah, don't write that. Let him just imagine what it might be. But all of that is going to go on during the tribulation period. It's when a third of the world's population dies and those that are not dead wish that they were. And it's all God's dealing with the nation of Israel. Now, I know that there are a lot of different opinions about end time things. Uh, there's different opinions, for instance, about when the rapture will take place. When will God's people be taken out? In the Philadelphia Baptist Church, we are pre-tribulational in our doctrine, meaning that we believe that the teaching of Scripture is that the church is raptured 
before the tribulation begins. And a big part of why we believe that is what we have seen tonight, and that is the tribulation has nothing to do with the church. It's God dealing with Israel. Furthermore, as New Testament believers, 1 Thessalonians 1.10 tells us that we are to wait for His Son from heaven, whom He raised from the dead, even Jesus, which delivered us from the wrath to come. As a Christian, as a New Testament believer, we've been delivered from the wrath to come. And if the tribulation period is a time designated by God's wrath being poured out upon all mankind, then it is an easy and logical conclusion to say God has delivered us from that. Then you couple us, couple that with the truth that we're told to wait for Christ from heaven, and we have a very compelling evidence, very compelling argument, that before the tribulation happens... God is going to rapture His church. And I could say much more about that tonight. But my time is out. The problem that many people run into when it comes in dealing with prophecy is they're looking for the wrong thing. A lot of people in talking about prophecy, they want to look for signs. They want to see what's happening and is this a sign? We had another earthquake just a couple of days ago in Morocco. And we hear we have earthquakes in diverse places, and we think, oh, is that a sign of his coming? We hear about a war breaking out. There's wars and rumors of wars. Is that a sign of his coming? And we, we, we are tempted sometimes to look for the signs. But that's looking for the wrong thing. Sometimes we're tempted to look for the Antichrist. You ever had a discussion? Well, who do you think the Antichrist is going to be? You know, it's usually... If, if a president you don't like gets elected, that's usually the Antichrist, right? You know, it's got to be. It's got to be him. I remember, I remember years ago when uh, President Barack Obama was, was uh, elected president. And, uh, oh, man, were the rumors swirling then about who the Antichrist was, you know? And, and so many people are looking for, who's the Antichrist? They're looking for signs or they're looking for the Antichrist. And the problem is that's looking for the wrong thing. Nowhere in Scripture have we been instructed to watch for the signs. Nowhere have we been instructed to watch for the Antichrist. But you know what we have been instructed to do? Look for our Savior's coming. That's what we've been commanded to do. Titus 2.13, looking for that blessed hope and the glorious appearing of the great God and our Savior, Jesus Christ. Philippians 3, verse 20, for our conversation is in heaven, from whence also we look for the Savior, the Lord Jesus Christ. And the angel said to the disciples in Acts chapter 1, Ye men of Galilee, why stand ye gazing up into heaven? This same Jesus which is taken up from you into heaven shall so come in like manner as ye have seen him go into heaven. Yes, we look for the Savior, not for signs or for the Antichrist. We're looking for Jesus to come. And the great thing is, it could be at any moment. I don't know when it's going to be. Anybody who tells you they do is lying. That is something that the Father has reserved for Himself. That moment, He knows and He alone. So what do we do? Well, turn with me to 1 John. I mentioned this verse earlier and I will close with it tonight. All of this is great information to know. We've seen some good things in Daniel's example, how he put a priority on Scripture. He mourned for the sins of his country. He pled for God's deliverance. We see God's prophetic calendar, how that 
69 of the 70 weeks are already fulfilled. That assures us that the 70th is going to be. There should be no doubt in our minds. But what do we do between week 69 and 70? Because that's where we live. What are we supposed to do right here? 1 John chapter 3, verse number 2. Beloved, now are we the sons of God, and it doth not yet appear what we shall be, but we know that when He shall appear, we shall be like Him, for we shall see Him as He is. When Christ returns, you and I who are caught up together with Him, and those who are raised from the dead are going to be instantly transformed, instantly glorified. We are going to be like the Lord Jesus Christ perfectly and in every way. We will be like Him, for we shall see Him as He is. Verse number 3, And every man that hath this hope in him purifieth himself, even as he is pure. See, God has not given us prophecy just so that we could fill our heads with Bible trivia and just so that we could wow people with the way that we can explain all the complicated predictions. God has given us prophecy so we would know that Jesus is coming back and so that we would live ready for His return. We would, notice the language, purify ourselves Live a holy life, even as Christ is holy and pure. Why? Because He could come at any moment. And if Christ could come at any moment, we should be ready at every moment. We don't want to have sin in our life and when Christ comes back, not have a chance to make it right, not have a chance to repent and be living righteously. We want to honor the Lord with the way that we live. And so tonight, as we close, Christ is coming again. And should He come tonight, are you ready? Heavenly Father, as we bow before You this evening, we are in awe at Your wisdom, Your sovereignty. We read a portion of Scripture of almost five, that talked about almost 500 years of history, predicted well before it, and how that it was perfectly fulfilled. And even as, as Daniel recognized that the, the prophecies of Deuteronomy will, were fulfilled in his day, Lord, it, it assures us that your word will not be broken. What you have said will happen. And Lord, we know that you've promised that Jesus would come again. We know that he promised that he would come again and he would receive us to himself. We know that he's coming. And Lord, we don't know when that might be. Help us to live ready. That should he come at any moment, our lives would be pure and honoring to you. And I pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen.